Hello, this is Jesse Weiler for Adoramus Bulletin. In this episode, I speak with Father Dylan Trader, who is a priest of the Diocese of Jefferson City, Missouri. We talked about his recent article, which was titled Altered States, Easterly Orientation in the Celebration of the Eucharist. This is a great article about Adorantum and versus Popolum. And without further ado, another Adoramus interview. Hello, Father Dylan. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you. Well, Father, there is so much that we could talk about this article. We could talk for hours, honestly. But could we just start by talking about the basic theology of why somebody would choose to celebrate Mass, Adorantum, or versus Popolum? What is the thought process behind all of that? I appreciate that. And I'm very glad for the opportunity to write a little bit for Adoramus and to follow up with this interview as well. Uh, there's been a lot written about the physical orientation of the priest and the people in the celebration of the Eucharistic sacrifice. And for theological highlights, I would point to the spirit of the liturgy by then Joseph Ratzinger, where he has an excellent chapter on this topic. Uh, and of course, Uwe Michael Lang's book, Turning Towards the Lord, which looks at some of the historical and also legal aspects of celebrating mass facing the people or facing uh, with the people. Um, so theologically, there, there are a lot of directions we could come from, but to start with what the essence of the mass is, uh, the mass is a solemn sacrifice. It's the Eucharistic sacrifice and it's offered to the father by Christ and in the Holy spirit. And in particular, the Holy spirit binds us to the action of Christ. And the thing I would highlight, which, Pius XII and Vatican II and, and many other church documents also highlight is that the liturgy is primarily an action of Christ. So first and foremost, it's not something that we do. It's something that our Lord does. And we are privileged to participate in that action. The priest being ordained and who's celebrating the mass participates as uh, in the person of Christ as the head of the church and the people, by virtue of their baptism, participate as members of Christ's mystical body. So it's an Augustinian notion, the whole Christ, Christus totus, who uh, worships the Father in the Holy Spirit in the celebration of Mass. And so that gives us a sort of understanding about the directionality of the Mass. Uh, a sacrifice is an action. It's not a static reality. So it's being offered to the Father. And the priests and the people are caught up in that action of Christ as he offers uh, to the father. And that sacrifice is represented in the celebration of the mass. There are other theological aspects of the mass as well. Of course, you know, there are cosmic dimensions. Uh, the mass can be seen as the junction of heaven and earth. And uh, there's an eschatological dimension that the mass is what sustains us on our journey toward the promised land of heaven as well. And so uh, the church is on pilgrimage uh, in this life and the mass is leading us uh, ultimately toward heaven. Um, in the ancient church, the practice was literally to face East toward the rising sun uh, for scriptural reasons drawn both from the old Testament and the new uh, in particular to look toward uh, Christ's second coming, which he says will be from the East uh, to signify Christ as the, the rising sun uh, as sort of the focal point of the entire universe. And so that's where the phrase ad orientum comes from literally toward the East. And in some churches, it's not literally toward the East, but it's symbolically toward the East. 
So, you know, I think a lot of people want to bring up maybe some historical aspects of what's going on in the mass. And, you know, certainly we don't think that Jesus Christ celebrated the Last Supper, you know, <laughs> ad orientum and, and anything like that. And the way that we did liturgies in the early church, this wasn't a principle. So can you walk me through maybe the development of that understanding so that, you know, we can kind of better understand how to have those conversations with people? For the historical background, I would really point toward the book Turning Towards the Lord, which goes into much greater detail. It's not always 100% clear what the practice of every congregation throughout the ancient and medieval worlds was. Uh, they certainly recognized that the Mass was oriented toward God, that spiritually speaking, it's directed toward God. It's not directed toward the community. And uh, there are parts of the Mass that are directed toward the community such as the homily, for example, uh, or the greetings when the priest greets the people and things like that. So the practice developed relatively early of adopting different postures for the different parts of the mass on the basis of what was going on. Uh, this is reflected in our practice today, which involves a variety of postures. And sometimes that's confusing to people who are not familiar with the Catholic mass. Uh, we sit for the readings, we stand for the gospel, we kneel for the Eucharistic prayer and so forth. And so the different postures, including the direction that the priests and the people were facing, uh, developed pretty early. Uh, so the, the full historical treatment, I would point toward turning towards the Lord but they wanted the posture they were adopting to be significant and to reflect what was happening at those particular moments of the mass. So when we talk about the ad orientum posture, typically we're focusing on the Eucharistic prayer or on the aspects of the mass that uh, express the sacrificial action. That is the, those that are directed toward God. So I don't think anyone expects the priest to face ad orientum for the homily, for example, you know, um, but in the ancient church, both, uh, both postures were used versus populum and ad orientum in different places, sometimes based on the architecture of the church itself. Uh, and in some places, the practice may well have been that they faced uh, toward the rising sun uh, when that was possible to do as well. But uh, pretty soon, uh, pretty soon in the relative history of the church, uh, the ad orientum posture became the dominant practice and really didn't have to be enshrined in law in a rigid way. In fact, sometimes people associate the ad orientum posture very strongly with the older form of the uh, Roman rite, as opposed to the newer form. But in fact, it was possible to celebrate the older form versus populum as well. There are provisions for that in the rubrics of the 1962 Missal, just as in the Missal of 2002 slash 2008, in the most recent edition, there are provisions for celebrating mass uh, ad orientum or versus populum as well. So it was more of a matter of uh, custom rather than being rigidly defined in law. Isn't it true that uh, in, in St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, there's this weird, <laughs> the way the orientation works there, um, that it would often look like versus populum just because of the nature of the way the church is built. Can you explain that a little? That's a classic example where for architectural reasons, you would not, you would uh, not see the ad orientum posture in the way that we would expect uh, now you have to remember where St. Peter's Basilica is, is built. 
and why it's built there. It's built over the tomb of St. Peter uh, on, you know, near Vatican Hill. And so they were limited architecturally in what they were able to build precisely because they, they had a location that they were locked into, that the church absolutely had to be there. The altar absolutely had to be over the tomb of St. Peter. That was the goal. And uh, so there are different, there are different historical theories about how mass would have been celebrated in the old Basilica or even, even in the old uh, sort of church that, that predated uh, the, the, the Basilica after Constantine. Um, some people think the mass was celebrated versus Populum, uh, which it may well have been. Some people think that the priests and the people all together faced toward the East, uh, which would be kind of a strange posture to adopt and so forth. But, uh, th- that, uh, that, that church is something of an exception in terms of how ancient churches were constructed precisely because of the location that they had to have the altar and they had to have the church in a specific place based on the tomb of St. Peter. But father Ling, uh, gives a much more detailed explanation of that in his book, which I keep recommending for good reason. So uh, we also know that even beyond the history of the mass itself uh, with, with uh, Christ's Paschal mystery, we also know that the Israelites would celebrate, you know, the feast of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. And you'd have a high priest go into the Holy of Holies and he would wear a garment with the 12 tribes of Israel and he would enter the Holy of Holies on behalf of the Israelites. And so that's a very Christ-like, very liturgical uh, thing that we see even in the Old Testament. So what, what is the importance of Christ being the principal liturgist and then us orienting ourselves in unity with him? What I think one of the important aspects of that is, is something that Vatican II really wanted to emphasize, which was the active participation of the people, the full conscious and active participation of the faith of the lay faithful. So when we recognize that Christ is the primary actor in the liturgy, what that does is it allows us to see ourselves as involved in something that Jesus is doing. So first of all, uh, that, that dignifies us that the character of our baptism, which is a kind of sacred power, the sacramental character is a sacred power gives us the ability to enter into Christian worship, not as spectators, but as active participants. Now the character of holy orders and the degree of the priesthood empowers the priest to offer the sacrifice in the person of Christ as the head whereas the character of baptism empowers us to participate as the mystical body of Christ. What that means is that we're not the reference point. The father is the recipient of the sacrifice and Christ is the one who acts. So one thing that that emphasizes is that the lay faithful are not watching the priest do something that they're not part of. And, and uh, the auto posture emphasizes that because the priest and the people are involved in the same action. They're not involved in different actions. And it's important to emphasize that the priest and the people participate in the same action in qualitatively different ways. So the priest is not a delegate of the faithful. He doesn't consecrate and offer the sacrifice by virtue of some power that the people have given to him, but rather by virtue of a power passed down from the apostles. However, that doesn't mean that 
he's doing something and the people are doing something totally different. Instead, it's Christ who's doing the one thing that's happening that is presenting himself to the father as he did once for all in a bloody manner on Calvary. And as now is made present to us mystically and sacramentally in the Eucharistic sacrifice, but it's the same sacrifice. So it's Christ's one action and the priests and the people participate in that action in different modes. But that emphasizes that it's not just the ministerial priest who's up there doing something and the people are watching, but we're involved in the same action. And if we're involved in the same action, it makes sense. We might face the same direction. That is, we're, 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 you know, we're, um, we're, we're not, uh, doing two totally unrelated things. The people are not just watching the priest, but they're with him. They're on his side and they can be physically, literally on his side with the Adorianism posture. So from my perspective, the uh, Adorianism posture of the priests, especially for the Eucharistic prayer, emphasizes the active participation of the people. That is that just as perhaps the deacon or the altar servers or con-celebrating priests would stand behind the priest celebrating the mass, because they're part of the same action. Uh, so would the people. So uh, there's a lot happening in the mass, right? We have the heaven in, in heaven. We have the angels and saints and we have the Trinity and we have Christ and we have the priest in persona Christi Capitis. And then we have us. What is the importance of hierarchy? I mean, you've mentioned this, you know, I'm, I'm baptized a priest, prophet and king, right? So, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a priest in and of myself. And so but but where am I in the hierarchy in you know this whole liturgy, the sac the sacred liturgy, and why does that matter that we have an order to all of this? Well, the the, the existence of the church as the people of God contains a structure that is willed by Christ Himself, and it's important to recognize that that the 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 hierarchy, which literally literally means holy order. Uh, isn't an invention of the church. It's, it's a characteristic of the church that was instituted by Christ himself, fulfilling what was prefigured in the old covenant in the way that the people of God was also structured. So for example, in the old covenant, there was the high priest, then there were the sons of Aaron, then there were the Levites, and then there was the people generally. Uh, in the new covenant, there is the bishop, there are the presbyters, there are the deacons, and they're the people of God generally. And those distinctions are, were instituted by Christ. And you can see this, for example, in the Gospel of Mark, uh, when it describes Jesus's choice of the apostles, I believe in chapter five, if I recall, out of the community of the disciples, our Lord specifically chooses 12 men whom he names apostles, and then he sends them out on missions and so forth. So the the distinctions within the people of God as to the different roles that we have are something that ultimately comes from Jesus. And one way to think about this is to borrow uh, some language from the Roman catechism, which speaks about the external priesthood and the internal priesthood. So another way to think about this is the ministerial priesthood and the common priesthood of the baptized. But I find that language of external and internal helpful those are two complementary or two mutually supporting components of church life. All of us, by virtue of baptism, are called to offer our, ourselves as a living sacrifice to God. And we do that internally by offering the sacrifice of our lives to God. But that's not enough. We also need 
the support of external ceremonies and external rituals, and in particular to be connected to the sacrifice of Christ, because we can only offer ourselves to the Father, everything in our life as a sacrifice to the Father, if we're in Christ, if we're connected to Jesus's self-offering, because that's the one true sacrifice. That's the only sacrifice that that atones for sins and that merits for us any grace that we receive. So we've got to be connected to what Jesus did and does. So the external priesthood makes that possible for us. That is the ministerial priesthood, which offers publicly visible sacrifice on behalf of the church and represents the people before God and God before the people. So the internal and the external aspects are are both essential for us. If we're just going through the external emotions and we're just physically present at mass, but we're not offering our lives to the best of our ability, then we're not really going to benefit from the Eucharistic sacrifice in the way that we should. But also we can't just say, well, I worship God in my own way, maybe on the golf course or wherever it is and be apart from the Eucharistic assembly. Uh, We need both. And there's some beautiful moments in the mass where that can be represented. For example, when the bread and the wine are perhaps brought forward in procession, representing the fruits of the people's labor out in the world, the lay people who are called to sanctify the world are bringing the representative fruits of their efforts out in the world to the meeting point between the nave and the sanctuary, uh, where the deacon then prepares the elements for sacrifice as the Levites once prepared the sacrifice. And then the priest offers the sacrifice. And then the faithful can even receive back from the altar, the fruits of that sacrifice, which is the body of Christ. So there's some beautiful moments where the liturgy expresses the complementarity of the role that the priest and the lay faithful have as external and internal um, offerers of the sacrifice. Uh, the last thing I want to touch is this uh, this playful way that you talk about how in some parishes, the priest will say, hey, why don't you come up on the altar and stand behind the altar and, you know, we'll do this together kind of mentality. Um, but you mentioned at the very end of the article that, you know, we are we are bound in glory and that we are we are united in this as well. And if you think about it, if you do ad orientum uh, liturgy, that's kind of what's happening anyway. And so it's a it's a you know, the way we see it, sometimes the illicit way is kind of uh they're actually in the ballpark of what's supposed to be happening liturgically or theologically, but it's, the implementation is wrong. And so I, I love, I love that, um, th- that uh, comparison that you give because it allows us to see, okay, well, there's an inherent truth there that people are seeking and they, they actually understand that they're a part of something. Just the, the implementation is wrong. So uh, I just wanted to point that out because I thought that was a, a really good way to kind of uh, wrap things up there. So, um, Father, thank you so much for this article. I thought it was very helpful to talk about the foundations rather than, you know, the fussiness of liturgy as sometimes it's easy to get in like preferences and things like that. So uh, understanding this, I think helps us all understand what our role is and how to more actively participate in the sacred liturgy. So thank you very much. And uh, if you want to read this article, you can go to autoramus.org. The title of the article again is altered states, Easterly orientation in the celebration of the Eucharist. And I will put a link to the article in the show notes. Father, thank you again. Thanks a lot. I really appreciate it. God bless. God bless you.